Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Bowie, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering. What a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me on the Maximum Mom podcast. I am your host, Elise Bowie. You know, I've never said that. I've never (laughs) once introduced myself. (laughs) I don't know why that just came out. But here I am, Elise Bowie, and I am welcoming Heather Mulder joining me today. Heather, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Elise. Oh, I am so excited to get into the conversation with you today. First, Heather... I mean, I have no idea what Heather would say about her prior life, but I consider <laughs> Heather somebody is like kind of a, a recovering lawyer. I mean, one of those big law lawyers who had yes. a great job, great position, partner, built a thriving practice. I mean, multiple seven-figure practice and also burned out. Is that fair, Heather? Not as a partner. So I was burned out very early in my career and then kind of figured things out later on and made it work. That's so lucky for you, huh? (laughs) It is, and it's possible. And I like to reassure people it's possible, but it doesn't come without trade-offs. Right. I love that. Well, tell us a little bit about what you do now, and then we'll go on to the rest. Tell us about your practice, what you're doing now, coaching lawyers. Yes. So I coach primarily private practice lawyers. I do coach some in-house lawyers, but mostly private practice lawyers. And a lot of what I do is business development coaching and leadership coaching and some mindset slash work-life balance coaching, but I put that in the realm of leadership coaching because a lot of it is about self-leadership first. (laughs) And frankly, my business development coaching is a lot of mindset coaching too, because let's face it, we all know what we're supposed to do. We just don't always do it. And so it's getting behind kind of the thoughts and the feelings that we all have that kind of keep us from doing the things we know we could and should be doing. And then finding ways to be more productive and waste less time and also learn how to, you know, create some real boundaries with clients and the firm and pretty much everybody. So it's a lot of what I do. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Boundaries, 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 yes. Well, speaking of boundaries, tell us a little bit about your family. Who makes you a mom? Who do you have at home? What does life look like for you all at home? So I have two boys and they are older. One is 17, going on what feels like 20 something. Uh, He's going to be a junior this year, about to start his junior year. And one is 12, going on 50. That one's a real spitfire. (laughs) Keeps me on my toes. And he is going into, what is it, seventh grade now. So both very, very into baseball. My life is ruled by baseball these days. I love that. So kind of baseball obsessed boys, huh? Yes. I, one of my best friends gave me a mug recently that said, I can't, my son has baseball because that pretty much sums up my calendar these days. I mean, it's year round. It is. It's crazy. And I have to tell you, as a mom of three boys, I struggled with baseball. The time that goes into baseball is profound. And I remember telling my boys, I'm like, I'm not a big fan of the game. I hate to admit that. That's pretty un-American. But there's too much sitting, just watching and being there. 
And I thought, okay, if I'm sitting for hours, I need some action, like a lot more action. I was like, I need football and lacrosse. Like those, I can get my, my head around. So they were like, okay, I guess we're not playing baseball. So, <laughs> I mean, literally their friends would be like, dude, don't you want to play baseball? And they're like, no, my mom, she can't really hang with baseball. <laughs> She's I, had, yeah, I had that issue early on. I remember a very key moment where I kept complaining to my husband about how much time it was. And this is when the first was just starting to get more active in it. And I think he was like 10, nine or 10, right? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, we're going to keep doing all this and my husband is just like, Heather, it's not up to you what the kids choose to do. If this is what they like, this is what they like. And you're going to have to get with the program. And he was very active growing up, very into sports. And I really wasn't. My brother was. I wasn't. And so I, I just remember thinking, all right, I guess I'll have to get with the program. And maybe I can convince them to do something else. But <laughs> I didn't. And I will say this. I've learned to love baseball over time. I still don't love professional baseball. Not my favorite thing. But kids baseball Yes, high school baseball, college baseball, love it. And, you know, you just find ways to make it work. For us, the key has been finding coaches we adore and families. The families of the other players are incredibly important because you are spending a lot of your time with those people. (laughs) Absolutely, you are. I think definitely. And obviously, the same is true of football and lacrosse. Like my idea of how much easier it was going to be didn't really probably pan out i mean lacrosse at I least it. fast so but then you know how they're like oh well i need to join a travel team and i'm like say what we're going where how many times? <laughs> like really but yeah. whatever i mean we we definitely were way into football i mean we still have such positive memories of we had one child playing freshman ball here in seattle so we'd go to a game there were friday nights we'd go to that game then we'd hightail it to the airport, hop on a plane, take an overnight to Chicago to go see my son in college who was playing ball football in Chicago, in the Chicago area. And so then we would go to those games at one o'clock Saturday. I mean, and then we would fly back on Sunday and I mean, we loved it, but I mean, we were whipped weekend after week during the football oh, yeah. season. And it, it kind of goes to show you, you know, we all have early on when we first have kids, there's this myth that when your kids get older, it'll get easier and less time consuming. And every single person I look at, I'm like, I'm like I hate to break it to you, but that is just not the case. Not even, <laughs> not even slightly. And I mean, carrying that baby around in the bucket, like I so friendly called it, that little car seat, uh-huh. that is your easiest time. It because is. I mean, you can set them down. They're not going anywhere. They can't get out. They can't do anything. You feed them, you nurse them, you get them to nap, you change your diapers. I mean, bring on teen years and. Oh gosh. And they fight with you and they don't follow directions and they want to do it their way, not your way. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, every (laughs) moment you're worried about their life. Like it's not just like, oh, is this baby crying because maybe their diaper is a little wet. It's like, oh, are they going to survive their bad decisions Mm -hmm. by the end of this day? Yeah. And when they're driving, it's just so much worse. You know, when the first time my oldest drove really far away and far away, it was about an hour away. Right. But through a lot of like big freeways and major traffic. And I flipped like I checked his iPhone, like, you know, tracking him where he was, made sure he got there safely. Like he thinks I'm way overbearing in that way. But I was just like, you know, (laughs) 
It's scary. It is scary. It is really scary. And yeah, my children probably, I mean, they might have wished I cared a little more about all that in some ways, but I tried so hard to just be like, you know, Zen. I was like, okay, you've been trained. You can do this. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, be over here, not worried, you know, as my poor husband is listening to me, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. Well, let's get in and let's talk about, I want to hear one of the things that I think of when I think of your practice is your inside out success framework. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. So this is something that I kind of developed on my own early in my legal career. And I think it's important for people to understand in some ways how it kind of got created so that they can see how to apply it to their lives. But I was in a state, so I said I was not burned out when I was a partner. I was burned out a couple years into my practice. I was one of those typical attorneys, especially big law attorneys who said yes to everything, thought the key to success was never to say no, to put myself up for everything I could possibly do. And it was mostly grunt work junk, like, you know, that I was putting myself out for, but really wasn't furthering my career, but it was killing me. And I remember this moment where I came home. It was the end of the year, right before Christmas. The most wonderful time of the year was playing in the background. And I started bawling. Like, it was not the most wonderful time of the year for me. And I went home and I complained to my husband for like the millionth time that year. And he, he'd had enough. He was like, dude, just stop. <laughs> you, know? you complain, you complain, you complain. You're not changing anything. And he looked at me and said, Heather, you have a choice. And needless to say, that did not go over well in the moment. But the next morning, I woke up and was like, oh, my God, he's right. And so I didn't know what to do, though, initially. Right. So I, I started watching people and really observing. I grew up really loving to observe people. And I'd gotten away from that as I started getting into my practice and everything became so frantic. And so I decided I'm just going to take a couple of months watching people and paying attention to who's happy, who's not, and how do I know they're happy and how do I know they're not? And what's different about the people that are happy that aren't? We all know there's a lot of unhappy lawyers out there, right? And a lot of overly stressed and anxious and all that, but not everybody is like that. So what are the people who aren't like that? What are they doing differently? And I didn't immediately say, oh, I'm going to create a framework, but I did pretty much without realizing that's what I did. So the first thing I realized is they all had a very different mentality around how they viewed the world and how they viewed success and how they viewed themselves. And I'm not even sure growth mindset was a thing back then. I don't think it really was. I don't think it, 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 I'm sure somebody knew about it, but they weren't talking about it in that way. right? Right. And they had that though. They didn't see themselves as failures if they made mistakes or failed at something. They didn't, like, they just viewed it as, oh, this is a learning opportunity. I need to take something and I need to move forward. And so that was the first piece. The first piece of my framework is rewire, like rewire your mind to think differently, to be more present, to be more open to opportunity, to have that growth mindset so that you can fail forward, like learn from things, and then also know that it's okay to make mistakes and fail upon occasion so that you can take risks. Because I do think we, risk, we lawyers are very risk averse people. And I don't know if that's who law school attracts or if that's, you know, just beaten into us because we are supposed to look for all the risks and plan around them. I think it's probably twofold. Right. But I think that inhibits us in our personal lives in the way we work and the way we relate to ourselves and to other people as well. And, you know, taking chances and and doing things differently. So that's the first piece. The second piece 
is reconnect. And what I realized when I looked at these other people was they all had a very strong self-identity. That's kind of how I saw it then. Now as a coach, we label that as values. They had values that were very core to them. They knew exactly what their values or principles, you know, whatever wording you want to give it. Mm -hmm. They had a very, very clear understanding of who they were, what they stood for, and how they wanted to show up every single day. And they aligned everything around those values or principles or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, that was the second was reconnect with my own values. And that's one of the things I help my clients do is figure out, okay, what are your values? What words do you put to those values? How do those manifest in your day to day? What does that mean for goals that you might want to set? That kind of thing. And then the third step is you got to get out of your own head and you got to start taking action. (laughs) So that's the realign piece. And the realign piece is really getting crystal clarity through your values on what your true priorities are and then actually prioritizing those. And you prioritize your priorities by creating boundaries, <laughs> by saying no when you need to, by and, and by taking, you know, action on things and not allowing, you know, what other people might think, should you not, it not work out, other people's judgments about you because you're doing things differently, not allowing those things to get in the way. So that's the framework. I love that. I mean, and when you talk about being able to realign and take action around your priorities, I have found, and it sounds maybe silly, but looking at my calendar every so often, like doing a real study of my calendar, and I'm like, well, Elise, it is fascinating to see what you've prioritized (laughs) right now. And I mean, it is a real just mirror to me of what am I prioritizing? And when I don't see things like, you know, calling one of my young adult children about something or, you know, Mm -hmm. connecting with my husband, maybe, you know, going out to the theater or whatever it is we like to do. And when I don't see those things prominently on my calendar, then I'm like, "Hmm, okay, where, you know, what, what's up? Like what has made you tilt some way? And I find my calendar to be really helpful. I'm curious what tools or do you use tools at all to look at that kind of I, mean, I have a day pl- I have a planner which I love that mm-hmm. really helps you stay she's and I can't remember but I can I can send you the information if you want it because they go on sale in like October and it's a small business but she's really good about helping you create a vision based on your values so it's very values based oh. like I am and then the way I like to do it is kind of having like a big goal for the year that are based on those are my priorities for the year, like the business goals and then the personal goals that I have, and then checking in every week. Okay, what am I doing this next week in furtherance of those? Because these are my priorities, right, right now, or they should be at least, and ensuring I have time set aside for those things every single week. So I have like a weekly check-in and then kind of a daily check-in too sometimes because things get in the way, right? Stuff comes up and, but you always want to, at least if something comes up to reschedule that time, if you have to like take time over it, because one of the things that I find, especially with my, my new clients is they say they have certain priorities, but then very little time is spent on those priorities. And I just, I hate to break it to you, but it's not a priority if you're not actually prioritizing it. So it's really important to, yeah, regularly check in and say, okay, what is my schedule telling me? Where am I actually spending my time? What are my supposed priorities? And how do I like 
manage that? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to delegate? What do I need to do about these things? That's the action part. That's the realigning part. Who do I need to say no to? Where do I need boundaries? Like all of that stuff comes up when you really get real about, am I prioritizing my actual priorities? It is. To me, it is game changing. Like I, a few years ago, stopped allowing myself and really kind of put up walls to other people close to me who would say things like, well, I haven't had time. And I'm like, we've all got the same hours every day, every week, every year. Like all of us have those 168 hours a week and we get to prioritize what we Mm -hmm. do in those 168 hours. Kind of like your husband was talking about that choice. Yes. You know, and how is it you're choosing to spend your time? And so when somebody tells me, you know, well, I haven't had time for this. And I'm like, well, you haven't prioritized the time for this, which might be great. Maybe that is exactly what you should not be doing. But then we need to talk about it if it's something that needs doing. Like, how do we reprioritize it somewhere else? How do we delegate it? Whatever it is. Or maybe we actually do need to let it go. Maybe it is not a priority. Yeah. And and I find that one of the best tricks that I learned I think kind of early on, and I don't remember how I learned this, but I think a partner said this to me at one point as I was kind of coming up the ranks, is to change your language around time and how you like acknowledge you're choosing to spend your time on A versus B. And when you start getting real about, yeah, well, this is what I've chosen to do instead of, it kind of clicks. Like all of a sudden you realize, ooh, why am I choosing time to do this and not this, right? And and it, it clarifies where you want to make changes. It's powerful. I think mm-hmm. it is powerful to change that vocabulary and honor the reality that you do have choice and you, yes, you are do. making that choice. And I think, I think that is such a powerful lesson. And I see it a lot in women's lawyer groups a lot who are like women, um, you know, their mothers and their lawyers. And you mm-hmm. will see just like, I mean, post after post after post of people who are presumably fairly miserable, like discussing how they're, <laughs> yes. you know, doing all this stuff and their husband isn't helping and they're, and I'm like, I mean, is, if there's no guns involved and nobody's holding a gun to your head, like you could stop doing the dishes, you know, mm-hmm. you can make different decisions. You can, and you can really have a conversation with the husband, right? I mean, I think where people go wrong the most is they equate discomfort and not wanting to have uncomfortable conversations with people, including family members, clients, colleagues, with no choice. Not the same thing. Not saying there aren't repercussions to your choices, not saying there aren't trade-offs. There's trade-offs to every single choice you make. But you need to be really honest about what all those trade-offs are that you're actually making with the choices you're taking right now versus what the trade-offs are with the choices that the other choices that are involved. So you can make a better decision. Yep. Oh, I think that is, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head about a difficult conversation does not mean there's no choice. It just means (laughs) that there's a difficult conversation to get through. And boy, do I think rumbling with vulnerability. And I mean, I'm definitely a big Brene Brown fan. Me too. You know, understanding those, the import of those difficult conversations and what can really come from them. I mean, some powerful transformation can occur through some of these really difficult conversations. I mean, you bring up such a good point of 
I sometimes think we just jump over that difficult conversation as a, a thing because many people are so conflict avoidant and they're just like, eh, I don't think I'm going to do that. And I'm like, oh, the alternative seems pretty gnarly to me. <laughs> it does. I mean, it's kind of like when I got to that point with my husband, I was getting to a place where I realized I didn't like who I was becoming. I didn't like this person I was becoming. And there are so many people who do that. They just keep going on as is thinking there is no choice when there clearly is another choice. And they don't acknowledge the person it's making them into. And if they only would, maybe they would, you know, step back and realize you already are vulnerable. You're just refusing to see it. And I would also say the whole vulnerability thing, and this is something cancer definitely taught me, which if you want to get into that, we can as a cancer survivor. Vulnerability can actually be a superpower. That's what I learned. And it is a superpower in the sense that if you are willing to go there and acknowledge your vulnerability and acknowledge your feelings, you can quickly turn them around and deal with them and then become way better and learn a lot more. And in a way where the vast majority of people out there are not willing to do. And that can really be a superpower with your relationships, with what you're willing to do for yourself and your business, like all kinds of things. Running your own practice can be scary, whether you're worried about where the next case will come from, feeling like you're losing control over your growing firm, or frustrated from being out of touch with everyone working under your license, the stress can be overwhelming. We will show you how to turn that fear into a driving force of clarity, focus, stability, and confidence that eliminates the roller coaster of guilt-ridden second-guessing and mistake-making to get you off that hamster wheel for good. Maximum Lawyer and Minimum Time is a step-by-step -step playbook that shows you how to identify what your firm needs and how to proactively get it at every stage of the game so you are prepped and excited for the inevitable growth that will follow. Name the lifestyle that you want and we'll show you how to become a Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. Find out more by going to MaximumLawyer.com forward slash course. Okay, we have to dive in there. And I think we should, I mean, we should start with your cancer and what that looked like. I mean, walk us through that. So I was a young partner at the time. I had a, my kids were six and two when I was diagnosed and it was a real shock. So I, you know, my, um, <laughs> I discovered it by accident. Thanks to my oldest child. He kind of, I don't know if you remember the connect games back in oh, the day, yeah. right? And everybody yeah. would move around and jump around. Well, he got one for Christmas and we were playing for that month after and he rammed into me with his like sharp elbow right in oh. my breast and he bruised me bad. Like he really rammed into me. Right. And at the time I noticed nothing. Well, a couple of days later, I felt the area to see, does it still hurt? It still looks right. bad, but does it still hurt? That's when I found the lump in my breast. <laughs> And had it not been for that, I don't think I would have found it anytime soon because I was 38 years old with no family history that I knew of. I was not regularly checking. So note to all the women out there, like regularly check, even if you think there's no reason, even if you're really young, because I had no reason to think I was going to get breast cancer. Right. And so I called my doctor and they got me in the next day and I knew I, knew I was in trouble when she kind of paused for a moment and was like, hmm. If I know you, Heather, you're going to want to like make sure this is nothing immediately. So I'm going to send you across the street now to get a mammogram. And I'm like, oh, yay. And I want you to get a sonogram, too. Like, OK, then. And I went and both were inconclusive and they wanted a biopsy. 
and I couldn't do it that day. It was a Thursday or Friday, and that weekend was MLK weekend. So I had to come back the next Tuesday, got the biopsy. As is typical in those settings, they were very, you know, nonchalant. Okay, you'll know within X to, and I think he said like five to seven business days. This was on a Tuesday. I wake up on Thursday morning knowing, knowing, even though it was only two days later, I was going to be diagnosed with breast cancer that day. I just knew, and I was right. <laughs> My doctor called me that afternoon, and she said, Heather, your results are not back yet, like in writing, but the pathologist called me because she was so concerned. And it was really scary because I don't know if you know anything about breast cancer or so there's this the score they give cancers. It's called a Nottingham score and they, they uh, grade three different things. And at the end of the day, you can score between a one and three and the higher the number, the worse. So the absolute worst score you could get is a nine. Mine was a nine. And apparently that's very, very rare. <laughs> Doesn't oh. happen a lot. Yeah. yeah. So they moved fast. So basically she called me on a Thursday afternoon and she said, you need to hand everything away today. Like your whole practice, you need to hand everything away because you're going and you're getting a CT scan tomorrow. And I have somebody I want you to meet with on Monday. That was my medical, uh, no, my surgical oncologist. Then we need to get you in with the medical oncologist next week. You're going to have nothing but tests. You're going to be in chemo soon. So, I mean, she likes told me the truth, which was very appreciated by the way, because not all doctors are like this. And I think she saved my life just by doing this so quickly. Yeah. So I basically spent the next three and a half hours calling my clients, calling fellow partners to take over my practice. This is the benefit to being in big law. <laughs> they were amazing. My firm was amazing. But I remember walking out that door going, I don't know if I'm ever going to be back. Because the news was so dire that the doctors all gave me the distinct impression that first week that I may not live. And you know, it, it was just really, really scary. So, so that's how I found out. And it, the next week I spent practically at the hospital and got lots of tests, found out it had not spread. I caught it really early, but it was growing crazy fast. And so within 11 days, I started my chemotherapy and I had chemo first, followed by bilateral mastectomy, had to have my ovaries removed. I found out I had the BRCA2 genetic mutation, had gotten it from my dad who had probably gotten it from his dad. So when it's passed down through men, it's not so obvious in your family history yeah. until a woman gets it. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty devastating. And that year, I basically decided to just walk away and not practice. Now, it's not to say I did nothing, but I didn't do any like document work. So I was a finance attorney and I realized about a weekend, I was like, A, this is going to be really hard. The chemo is not going to, you know, and I got into a trial drug. There was another drug I was taking on top of regular chemo, which I also believe saved my life. I had something called triple negative breast cancer. I don't know if you know what that is. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it, and for those of you who don't know, it basically means there's three th main things they've identified that they, they can test for. And I was negative for all three and triple negative is more aggressive with a much higher recurrence rate. And so I, I basically said, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to live through this or not. So I'm going to let everybody else take over. I'll be here for questions. If they have big picture questions that I'll answer on the phone, but I'm not doing any actual work. And that's what I did for practically the next year. And I was in chemo for like a little over seven months, had a month in between, then my mastectomy, then some time in between in reconstruction. And so it really was almost a year long process for my body to go through. Talk about vulnerability. <laughs> yes. I mean, you yeah. had a crash course in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard. So I'm the oldest 
of my family. I have a younger full brother, a half brother, two half sisters, some stepsisters, and we're a big family and we're all very close. And I was always the one everybody came to for all their advice, right? And so here I am, the patient, the person who's not doing well, that everybody wanted to take care of, which was flipping hard for me. I hated that at first. And I would pretend for the longest time, for months, that I was fine. You know, people, how are you? I'm fine. I'm doing great. I'm, you know. And then finally, I just decided this is like too much energy. It's not worth it. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And so I like, yeah, I don't feel so good. <laughs> you know? no, I stopped really pretending. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. There's nothing like that kind of experience that forces you to come face to face with, okay, I'm a human being, which means I am vulnerable. Even when you don't have cancer, you are, right? And so it was time for me to just acknowledge it and move on. And the interesting thing that I found, and this is where vulnerability, I felt like became a superpower for me, is when I allowed myself to be more vulnerable, to open up to other people. Mm -hmm. I allowed other people to come in and help me in the best way that they could, to kind of use their inherent unique strengths and gifts to be there for me. And there's this like deeper connection that you get with people when you do that. And so that was a huge lesson for me around allowing people in and not always having to be the one to fix everything for everybody else. And how, you know, it didn't just give me what I needed, but I allowed them to get what they needed by utilizing their strengths for my benefit, if that makes sense. It does completely. Well, and you can see that in other areas of your life too, like even in your families. I mean, we can be more more vulnerable and yes. allowing people in our immediate families to use those strengths and in our teams at work. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I think it is amazing how you've turned such a thing and been able to see such, I mean, growth for yourself in that area of vulnerability. And I mean, that's not an area I think a lot of people think about like, I'm going to grow my vulnerability. You know what <laughs> no. I mean? And especially as lawyers, I kind of think we're trained into, I mean, almost really masking it, you know, and keeping oh, it yeah. hidden. I mean, in a, I'm not saying anybody says that, but I mean, it's definitely the vibe we all get in law school and going mm-hmm. into practice. Like we're not supposed to make mistakes. We're not supposed to look confused. We're not supposed to need a lot of help. We're supposed to just be giving, giving, giving to our clients. And when we're having, I mean, some real vicarious trauma sometimes from the work and the the thing, it's hard for us to really raise those white flags and be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing was my clients too. They would call me, they would see how I was doing. They'd send me emails. They all stuck with me. Um, did some of my workload for other people go down a little bit? Would I have done more? Yeah, probably but none of them left. They all wanted to stay. And I think this shows that you can be a human being with your clients. You can, and I had, you know, really strived hard to build relationships with my clients that weren't just about me being their lawyer. Like we would have conversations about how your kid's doing. And I was very particular about how I built my practice. Once I became a partner with clients who shared my values, who, um, who were very similar in, in a lot of ways. And I think, and that's part of what I do with my clients now is help them figure out it's not worth it to have clients that are not a fit. 
because then you're miserable. Like you want, you do have to sometimes work a lot. You do sometimes have to work long hours and into the evening and on the weekends. Wouldn't you rather be doing that for somebody who actually cares about you as a human <laughs> and is only going to ask that of you when they truly need it? Right. Or would you rather do that with somebody who doesn't and just sees you as somebody who's there to be at your beck and call? And so I had really, this was something that came into play for me that year. They were loyal to me. They stayed with me. I grew my business way beyond what I had pre-cancer after I came back. And I think a lot of that had to do with how careful I was around, on aligning my entire practice around my values. And that includes my clients. Oh, I love that. It is sometimes, I think, as a business owner, and I know a lot of people in the Maximum Lawyer Group, you know, we're owning small law firms and people worry about turning away work, you know, and they uh-huh. think like they kind of have to let everything come in the door. You know, sometimes people call it the door law. And right. oh my gosh, is that, I mean, nine times out of 10, such a mistake to yeah. not do that real alignment with your clients because well, it's a trap. It's a trap that uh, people think, well, I'll do this at first. Yep. They get caught up in it and they can't ever get it. It's very hard to get out. And yeah. so I suggest to clients, yeah, don't do that at all. Yep. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's very yeah. true. And you're right. It's sometimes it's hard to get out. People get what I call those golden handcuffs. You know, they might be producing at a certain level or doing what they're doing. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, what am I doing? You know, and once they do that realignment, you know, that inside out success framework, you really think about what am I doing and Uh what am I spending my time on? And it's pretty powerful. Uh (laughs) Yeah, that is so fascinating. I love that. I just love how you have turned. I mean, what could have just been I mean, such a horrendous, horrible thing, but I mean, into, I mean, to be able to flip it into a superpower is kind of amazing. Like, oh, I thank just, you. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. I mean, it's funny because I think of Hurricane Katrina much in the same way. Like we just got, you know, I mean, we had to evacuate. We lost uh-huh. everything. You know, there we are. None of our friends were where we were. We literally had a whole life in a city we'd lived in for 30 something years. And now Mm -hmm. boom, we're in a different place. No, no people, no nothing. And I remember thinking like, this is kind of bad. But then I was like, Ooh, this is kind of cool. Like I get to teach my children. I kept thinking like my children are really watching. I mean, and you know, yeah. I mean, do your kids watch when the shit hits the fan? Let's be serious. And I thought, you know, they could see me down and out kind of sad, not really knowing what to do, kind of wistful. And I mm-hmm. thought, or they could see me pretty resilient, like, let's dig in, let's make it fun here, let's make new friends, let's find activities, and really show them, I mean, there's nothing I can do about the hurricane. I mean, I got zero control over Mother right. Nature, but do I have control over how I'm going to act on the flip side of that yes. hurricane? Big time. Yes. Yeah, so important. It is, and I think having that space to be able to step back in the moment, kind of like you were saying that initially you were like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was kind of the same way, kind of like, Oh, no problem. Our whole lives are turned upside down. We'll just not worry about that. And no biggie. We'll, yeah, no biggie. Seriously, I was like, no problem. I got this four kids, you know, it's all fine. And um, after a few months, I was like, Hmm, this has been a little dicey, but you know, really, trying to dig in and be like, okay, we need to find some activities here. We had moved to this tiny town in Georgia. It was like totally different than New Orleans. 
And I then, same thing, kind of had to become pretty vulnerable in really reaching out to people and, you know, and meeting new people and asking for help. Mm. Like I couldn't afford four kids in a swim team anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. our whole lives got flipped upside down. Like, and I had no idea whether we were going to be able to practice law again. We had to, you know, get rebarred. I mean, you know the whole deal when you move. Oh, yeah. So I was just, I mean, I had to go to the swim club and I'm like, do you offer like aid that I could pay back over time or something? But I was like, (laughs) my kids need to swim. Like they need to get back into their activities that they love. Like that's grounding for them. Mm -hmm. And so, and I mean, there I am asking for aid, but whatever. Now I get to just donate to that swim club whenever (laughs) it's my fancy. Cause I feel like they kind of rescued me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so- Well, I mean, let's talk about when you think about choosing to be happy. I mean, when we talk about like creating and creating choice and having choice, I mean, Mm -hmm. what do you say about creating your own happiness? Because, I mean, you did it in a pretty bad situation. (laughs) I did. But also in big law. I mean, I would say mm -hmm. there are many people who walk around in big law not happy. Very unhappy, sadly. I was shocked when I announced that I was leaving at the number of partners who said, oh, I wish I were you. Not necessarily that they wanted to start a coaching business, but that they wanted to leave law altogether and they felt stuck there. And I think a lot of it has to do with the mentality. I think there's a lot of lawyers out there who could be a lot happier. A couple of things. So first, trade-offs. Acknowledging that there are trade-offs to everything. And when you get really clear on your values and you know what they are, it's a lot easier then to figure out what the right trade-offs are. So that's why the values are so important because I do not think of happiness quite the same way most people do. I think of it as contentedness with you, with yourself, with how you're making decisions and choices and how you show up in the world every single day. Because let's face it, stuff happens that's hard, that's not easy, that's difficult. And you're going to have moments of despair and sorrow and all of that, right? But you can still find little things to appreciate in the moment that get you through those times. I certainly did when I had cancer. I did when my baby brother died a couple years ago during the, the, towards the end of the pandemic. You know, were those times easy? No, but I was very content with who I was being in that moment. And that to me is what happiness is. So I think people first need to re kind of define what happiness is. (laughs) And then the values really are key to making good decisions and then acknowledging that there are trade-offs. I think people want to not, you know, have to make trade-offs and that's just not life. Life is a, it is trade-offs and it's really about getting to a place where you're like, you know what, I can make those, that I'm good with that. Yep. And if you can do that, it makes it a whole lot easier then to identify what's the right choice for me. How do I want to build my practice? Even if you're in big law, right? I did not do it the way everybody else did. I did it my own way. And I had a good book of business. Could it have been bigger? Yeah, it could have, but I chose to like not go above a certain amount because I knew that wouldn't work for me. It wouldn't work for my family. It would be too much. I didn't want to have a team of 30 people working for me with a 10 to $20 million book of business. I just didn't. I made that choice knowing what that meant. It meant I didn't make quite the same money as some people in my firm did, but I made good money. (laughs) I wasn't going to complain, you know? And so, yeah, there were trade-offs. And when you, you realize this and you redefine happiness that way, it just gets a lot easier to make the right choices. Oh, I just love what, I mean, just the thought about contentment and contentness with yourself and what you're doing. 
it that's just resonates so much with me. I mean, last week I had kind of one of those dicey weeks where, you know, you're dealing with a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I said to my husband at the end of the week, I said, you know, this week was, you know, really kind of hard. I mean, it was difficult. But at the end of the day, I was like, I can look myself in the mirror and I feel very, very confident that I was true to who I was throughout the week. And that sounded probably so silly to him. But to me, it was huge because I was like, I was like, despite ups and downs, Mm -hmm. I was able to just be authentic in who I was throughout all of it and not really ride any of those ups and downs. Just stay pretty steady Eddie about what it is. And I think having your values and really knowing what those values are, Mm -hmm. it's so powerful because when you have one of ups or downs, I mean, I find Mm -hmm. either, I mean, if you let yourself go too high on a a, a ride up or low on a ride down, if you are not grounded in those values, you can fall off that roller coaster. Easily, yeah. And I find it's, I mean, so I love the idea of contentment because it's almost like it flattens that roller coaster. It's like it your does. values yeah. help you flatten the roller coaster. And it doesn't mean you're not enjoying the high or really feeling, you know, the lows. Cause I, I feel like I'm a very empathetic kind of mm-hmm. impact person with a lot of feelings, but it's different. It is, it, I don't have those same swings that I feel like I did as a younger person before I really kind of, yeah. kind of started leading myself, you know, more intentionally. Yes, no, absolutely. I think you still have the roller coaster of life with mm. circumstances, right? That you don't have control over. And we don't have control over other people. We don't have control over a lot of things, which makes for that roller coaster. But the emotions don't have to be so high, low, high, low. And you could still go, okay, maybe I made a decision that now knowing what I know now, I would have made differently. But back then I did the best I could. And I still evaluate it with my values. And that's that's good enough. That's where I think it gets you. I love that. Yeah, it's so important to really think about that and think about your values through all of your decisions. And that is such an intentional practice. Mm-hmm. I, it I is. Mean, and of course, one of my values has to be freedom because I am definitely, you know, the freedom girl. And so I literally, whenever I sign up for anything that's going to put me in a box of like, you know, I'm not going to have the freedom that I want yeah. and I, it's so funny because I have to ask myself, I'm like, okay, how boxed am I going to be now? And am I going to be okay with that? But like you talk about it's trade-offs. It is. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, as we close up, what does coaching look like with you? So if people who are listening to this, they want to, you know, connect, reach out, what does coaching look like? So I do individual and group coaching. Um, The group is very business development oriented. If you want to grow your practice or, you know, better manage your team and kind of grow into a bigger team, whatever that would look like for you, that's called Elevate. And that's kind of a coaching slash mastermind. So it's, it's got a group component where the group gets together and they support one another and help brainstorm ideas and have that kind of group support that a lot of us lawyers don't get from our peers. Uh, For whatever reason, we're always too afraid to go talking to people. This is a great way to do it (laughs) because I curate the group to really fit one another really well. Um, And then you get coaching from me as well so that you get both of those things. And then I also do one-on-one coaching, which is 
recommended to be twice a month, but some people do it monthly, but, you know, regular coaching where we work together to make sure we understand your values, your priorities, create a business plan from it. If you're not ready for the business development, I do the mindset self-leadership coaching as well. So it kind of depends on where people are. So if they're earlier in their career or they're at a stage where they're not sure they really want to practice in a like private practice or where they are anymore, I do not recommend business development coaching. You're not ready for that. You need to figure out what you really want first. And then those that really know they want it, but want to do it better on their own terms and in a way where they can still be more balanced. That's what the business development coaching is for. And how long would somebody work with you? Do you have any type of general? So, well, I recommend at least six, well, I require at least six months. Because it takes time for all of this to happen. Most of my clients work with me for a period of 12 to 18 months. And some will continue after that. Most will not. None of them need me after that. It kind of depends on what they want. And, you know, maybe they're getting, you know, wanting to get to a newer level and they want some support with it or whatever. But, you know, and and some within six to eight months are done. It really kind of depends on why they've come to me. Yeah. I love that. I just, I mean, I'm such a huge fan of getting coaching and the mindset work. I just think it, I mean, you can almost tell when you're talking to somebody within, I mean, 10, 15 minutes, I think to myself, I'm like, whoa, you are a victim of everything. This is going to be hard. Like just everything's going to be harder. And you're just, I almost just wish I had like gift cards and I could be like, could you, you know, (laughs) Go read like these 50 books and then go meet with somebody like Heather because boy, I mean, just the the difficulty of what everything is like, it's just, you can feel it. It just oozes out of certain people. Yeah. I would say though, that not everybody's ready for coaching. Um, Everybody who needs it, isn't ready for it. And you've got to be in a space where you're fully committed and ready to making the changes. It's funny because a lot of people come to me and say, well, I just don't know if I have the time. I'm like, it's actually not the biggest time commitment. What it is, is an energy commitment. And there's all this internal change that has to happen. And you've got to be ready for that. You've got to be willing to face vulnerability. You've got to be ready to face your fears and meet them. And then still step and take those steps that you're afraid to take, right? And have difficult conversations and all of these things that we put off because we think we can't or, oh, you know, somebody else will react a certain way. Well, you're still going to do it. So (laughs) that's, I would just say, and that's okay if you're not ready. It's, it's okay. You know, you got to make sure you're really ready for it and prepared for it. And I have a fair number of people that will reach out to me. And after talking, it's clear they're not ready. But yeah. 6, 12, 18 months later, right. even, they come back. Now, often they say, I wish I'd hired you back then. But And I'm always like, but you weren't ready and it wouldn't have been helpful. Like, you need to be in that space where you're right. ready to do these things. And it's okay if you're not. So I just wanted to say that because, you know, I think we tend to beat up on ourselves Right. And we got to meet ourselves where we are in the moment and be okay with that. Because sometimes there's some internal work that we need to do first before we can even be okay with hiring somebody to help us get to that next step. I love that thought. I mean, I think you're really right. I mean, just being coachable requires a certain yes. almost presence of mind. And, and I yes. think you make a good point too. The energy that is going to go into it is way bigger than the time. Yeah. I mean, and I would say if you're not sure reach out to somebody and talk to them. It never hurts to do that or reach out. Like I have a resource 
it's kind of like the five main things I had to do to um, to when I was really burned out to go from burned out to balanced. Right. There's a lot of coaches and I, I can give you a link to that if you want to put that out there. But there's a lot of coaches that have that kind of thing that can kind of help you like test the waters and see, is this really for me? Am I ready for this <laughs> before you do anything? That is awesome. Well, yeah, I would love it if you would send that okay. to us and then we'll put it in our notes and get it out to the listeners because sure. I mean, I think, I just think post pandemic, I mean, just as a business owner, what I'm seeing is a level of burnout that is, I mean, I've not seen anything like it in my entire career, how burned out people are right now. I haven't either. And I think sadly people made the excuse of because of the pandemic, I just have to keep pushing through for even longer without doing something about it. And that somehow the pandemic changed the whole calculation of like taking care of yourself. I just say, please don't do that. I have a client that find, that she hired me recently. She had a heart attack last year because of it. I, I was like, do not let yourself get to that point. It's not, that's not okay. And it's nothing. And I mean, nothing is worth that. Yeah, that's a whole, we could do a whole thing on prioritizing self-care yes. without the guilt and the shame of, <laughs> yes. I mean, oh my gosh. Okay, Heather, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Thank you for having me. And tell us how people can reach you. Like, what is the best way for somebody to reach you? So uh, email, if you want to just reach directly out to me, and I can give that to you, heather at heathermolder.com. My coaching website is coursecorrectioncoaching.com. And then I also have a podcast called lifeandlawpodcast.com. So any one of those ways you can find me. Perfect. Well, I appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And I hope somehow you. you manage in Dallas to stay a little cool at trade ball games, <laughs> you know, despite the hundred plus degree weather you all deal with. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks again, Heather. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.